Welcome to the Fox Pro Podcast, brought to you by Fox Pro Game Calls. Welcome back to the Fox Pro Podcast. We've got a great episode lined up for you guys. We're going to be discussing crow calling with Mr. Bob Aronson. Bob, we appreciate you coming on. How you been doing here lately? I've been doing fine, sir. How are you doing? Doing doing real well. It's uh, spring is spring is here and turkey season's fastly approaching and you know I, I like getting after the long beards pretty good actually been sitting out here listening to a couple uh couple birds gobbling here behind the house and uh and heard some crows <laughs> some crows was firing up and the, the turkeys were answering the crows and it definitely made me think about you that's for sure well that, that's awful nice i've been busying myself whenever i go to walmart to pick up a few odds and ends i always swing by sporting goods and pick up uh some ammo in uh, small increments. So by the time uh, the fall rolls around, I'll be in pretty good shape. That's right. That's right. And for all you guys out there uh, that don't may not know Bob, Bob is a member of the Fox Pro Field staff and is the authority on crow calling. It's a pretty good chance that Bob has probably called and killed more crows than anyone else out there. Bob, you care to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Well, uh, I actually started hunting crows. I shot my first crow flying when I was 11 and a half years old in uh, New York State with my father. And, um, you know, I hunted them uh, up until the time I was about, uh, about 17. And at that particular point, that was a real turning point in my life because from 11 and a half to 17, I would hunt in upstate New York with my dad. We would cruise the back roads, and everybody knew everybody in those days. Uh, I'm talking now in the late 50s, very early 60s to mid-60s. And um, we would run and gun. My dad would uh, get into a thicket, call some crows over. It would last a few minutes. Then you'd go on down the road for a mile, mile and a half. And you'd look, stop the car and listen, see if you could hear some crows, he'd call over some more. But in 1965, <clears throat> what happened was I got real sweet on this gal and I wanted to marry her. Yeah, I, a woman, said, a woman to get you in trouble every time, Bob. Oh, you're not kidding. <laughs> so my father told me, he said, this is why young men have fathers. He said, he says, you are going out to South Dakota to live with Wayne Christensen who uh, he used to be a salesman for Stoger Arms out of Hackensack, New Jersey. And I, I knew Wayne. I, I met him at a lot of the gun shows back there when my dad and I would go to them in New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia. And uh, so he retired from um, Stoger Arms, and he moved to Chamberlain, South Dakota. So my dad sent me out there to live with him for a year. And when I got used to living in the Midwest, which was it was like an alternate universe compared to living back east with the way the people are just so darn friendly. And between the ducks and the geese and the crows and the and the prairie chickens and the sharp tailed grouse, I went absolutely crazy out there. And every time my dad would call, he would say, how's his report card going? And he says, all he's doing is hunting. And I worked for Wayne Christensen, who had a gun shop. Uh, after school and then he would give me a discount on all my reloading supplies and i'm telling you that was the beginning of it for me with the crows because that was my first taste of getting a shot at some crows and some real huntable numbers out there uh, around chamberlain that's good stuff bob and and uh, you've been after them ever since i'm sure 
Yeah, I've been after him ever since. And um, uh, as a matter of fact, in 1965, around Chamberlain, that is where I met my crow hunting mentor. He was a gunsmith from Sioux City, Iowa. His name was Boyd C. Robeson. And I remember where I was uh, calling the crows over. I shot maybe 20 or 25 of them. That was it. And I was watching Boyd. He was probably, I'm guessing, uh, maybe a half a mile from me. And I went over after he was done. And I mean, he had dead crows everywhere with him and his partner. And he had a pair of mallard tone crow calls around his neck. And I didn't know what a mallard tone crow call was. I was using a pair of Loman hand calls in those days. And um, so I got acquainted with him, got talking with him, and that was the end of that. And I hadn't seen him again for about eight years. I ran into him again right down here in Bueller, Kansas. That's when the crows were really thick down here in Kansas. This was back in the uh, very early 70s. Um, I believe it was 1970 when I ran into uh, Boyd for the second time. And I didn't know who he was. He didn't know who I was because of the time lapse. And I had only met him one time prior in 1965. But I noticed the crow calls around his neck and I jogged, jogged my memory. And I said, do you ever hunt crows in South Dakota? And he says, sure. I said, it wouldn't have been up there around White Lake, would it? And he says, yeah, as a matter of fact. And then he said, holy smokes. He says, are you that kid who came up to me and was talking to me years ago? And I said, you, did you drive a white pickup truck in those days? And you had a tall, slender guy with you? He says, and then it just clicked. So he said to me, look, I just moved here from Sioux City. This was in 1973. And <clears throat> so at any rate, I was saying 1970 a little earlier. It's, it's hard to remember the exact date. So it had to have been in 73. He said, I just moved here in 73. He said, um, Here's my business card. He says, if you come out again alone, he says, look me up because he says, I won't hunt with three people. He says, two is company. He said, three is a crowd. Right, so I right. came out next month alone. And it was like uh, uh, two cuts of cloth that meshed together. And I remember the first time I hunted with him where I was actually in the blind. He didn't do any shooting. <clears throat> he just was observing me to watch to see how I operated. And right. uh at any rate, it was a match made in heaven. And the two of us from 1974 until 1990, just the two of us together, okay, well, the combined totals of the two of us, we shot just, just a little bit shy of 100,000 crows together. And <clears throat> out of that, when you're talking about from 1974 to 1990, um, it, it's interesting, too, how things work out, because from 1974 to 1990, that was the first 16 years of me living out here when the birds used to be right, right here on right. my back doorstep. That's when I shot the first 50,000 crows, and, and most of those were shot with a 20-gauge. But those, those were some days because we had two enormous roosts. One was 15 minutes from my house in Medora, Kansas. That held over a million birds. There was another one 40 miles west that held a million plus. Now, if you ask me, did it really hold a million? I don't think anybody can really honestly say, okay, this has a million birds or whatever. All I can tell you was it was, it was hundreds of, crows. of thousands. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's, that's pretty cool stuff, Bob. You talked about shooting your first crow at, uh, at 11, 11 and a half years old, and then those days you're talking about there. And, and let's talk about like today. What's your crow? What's your crow count? 
here in 2023? Well, uh, let's see if I can figure this out here. Okay. Uh, I shot my 50,000 crow in Kansas. Okay. Yep. I shot my 75,000 crow up in Iowa. Um, I shot my 100,000 crow down in Texas. Okay. I shot my 125,000 crow in uh, Illinois. And I shot my 150,000 crow in Illinois, and I'm up to a hundred and a little over 172,000 now. That's pretty awesome. That's a that's a lot of shooting right there. Like I said, Bob Aronson is the authority on crow calling, and you know here I'm I'm ready to learn about crow calling here, Bob. So let's get right into it. First off, uh, first things first, let's talk about the crow itself. How intelligent is a crow? How smart actually is a crow? Well, I, I had an old hunting buddy of mine who summed it up rather well, and his name was Jim Lundquist. I hunted uh, crows with Jim Lundquist for over 20 years. And um, Jim used to come down and hunt crows every year from Minnesota when the crows were here in, uh, in Hutchison. And um, at any rate, uh, Jim uh, was in the blind one day, and he says to me, he says, you know, he says, a crow has a... Uh, a brain, he says, smaller than a ping pong ball. He says, probably about the size of a pea. And he says, I think that their IQ is smarter than most crow hunters. And he said, that's including the two of us. And, and that pretty well <laughs> summed it up. Right. <clears throat> you know, with the crows themselves, they're a very, very intelligent bird. But to coin a phrase that Bert Popowski uh, used to use, he said that you can use their intelligence to defeat them. And by okay. that, I mean that if you've got a good distress call to use <clears throat> because of their intelligence, they hear a good distress call. They're going to come to it to see what's going on. And crows have a very gangsterish spirit, too. Right. They have right. the real mob mentality. Yeah. For instance, to, uh, to give you an example, when you were a young boy and you're out there on the on the school ground and. And uh, the two toughest kids on the playground are finally going to get into it. Man, that's a big that's a big draw. Everybody comes. Everybody in comes to running see to see what's going on. That's for sure. Sure, yeah. the, crow, the crows are the same way. You know okay. what I mean? Yep. When when uh, when they might be mobbing an owl in a grove, trying to you know run them out of there. You know, uh, they hear the commotion and they're curious. You know what I mean? To see what's yep. going on. And if, if if you can get them fired up, where uh, uh, where you actually get them mad, uh, where, uh, you know, they come in, uh, my old hunting partner and crow hunting mentor, uh, Boyd Robeson used to refer to it as <clears throat> they're coming in with blood in their eye for crying out loud. Right. They just want to tear the place <laughs> up when they get in there. And that's fun to shoot them like that too, because if you get them strung out and it's a nice breezy day, um, it muffles the sound of the shooting too, especially right, right. If, you, if you have a, um, a crosswind, say for instance, if you have a Northwest wind and the birds are coming in directly from the South and just, and then they're hooking in from the Southeast with the way the wind is, you know, coming into the wind, the birds that are a couple of hundred yards downwind, the shooting just sounds like a slight pop to them. They don't even notice it. And if you're well hidden, they can't tell where the shooting is coming from anyway. So right. uh, now that now this is also providing you're working with birds that haven't been shot up, uh, you know, too many times in the past, because the more grim experience that they get from being shot, 
the wiser they're going to get. So um, that, that's another factor where um, I listen to, you know, some guys, they will say, well, you know, there's no other guys that crow hunt in my area. And I just can't understand why the crows just won't come in any closer. Well, they might not think anybody else is hunting them in their right. area. And maybe it's not their immediate area. It could be somebody maybe on another part of the county. But if those crows got shot in another part of the county and they venture into the part of the county where these guys are shooting, where they don't hear any other guys shooting crows, they've still been shot up before they get to these guys. And they can't understand why the crows act the way they do. But right. that's why they act like that. That's pretty, that's pretty good stuff. I got to ask you a question here because you said uh, you used the phrase well hidden. What, what about concealment? Is it important when calling crows? Tell us how you like to get set up for crow calling. Well, you know, whether you're running gunning or whether you're hunting from uh, just a fixed blind location, concealment is very important and it's much easier to conceal yourself during the, um, summer months and early fall where you have more foliage on the trees um as the as you start to lose all the uh, the cover from the leaves on the trees it gets more difficult and that's where you need a good blind and one of the things that uh is real important when you are uh, uh either going to have a portable blind or a blind from a fixed location is to make sure not only do you have good cover 360 degrees around you in the blind, but the back of that blind, that's where you really have to have it nice and dense because you don't want to be what they call it backlighting, where birds can be coming in downwind from your position. And if the back end of your blind is real open and you got a a lot of sunlight coming through there, they can pick movement out in the blind because of the gaps where if you have it nice and dark and shaded, um, it makes it very, very difficult for them to pick you out. And you have a lot more freedom of movement inside the blind like that. Um, other things, too, is and um, we discussed this earlier on one of our earlier conversations is that uh, it's great to be concealed but from what I see from a lot of videos where that, you know, some of the guys that uh, make on crow hunting, they get themselves so well concealed that they hamper their ability to shoot the crows where they, they limit themselves so much that there's only maybe one or two areas that are open where they can shoot the crows from, which cuts down dramatically on the amount of birds that you're going to get. Um, so uh, blind placement is is critical. And what I mean by that is, is you can have your blind set up. It's best to have cover in front of you to break up your blind, because a lot of times guys will take the blind. They set it out there, you know, in the open. And if those crows have been shot before and they see a nice boxy looking uh, uh, blind set up out there, and they start fading off and they change the decoys around figuring that might be it, or they might change the speakers around and that might be it. And sometimes it is, but for the most part, what they fail to realize is, is when those crows get within about a hundred yards of you, 60 yards of you, you know, they start fading off because they're picking the blinds out. They know. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. 
So uh, that's why it's important, too, to make sure you got the blind brushed up to break up the boxy-type outline okay. of blinds like that. So, so so concealment is very important. You just can't expect to go out there and sit in the open and, and be knocking crows out there. That's, that's exactly right. Okay. Now, um, what, what I have done uh, uh, when I get into areas, especially if I'm in a new area, and I'm not sure, uh, you know, how the crows are going to respond. So rather than, you know, setting up all my equipment and then finding out that the crows, you know, are, are too spooked and don't want to come to the call, what I'll do is I'll just get into a grove of trees where I got cover 360 degrees around me. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I'll just whoops, whistle up a, uh, just a fast makeshift blind. Nothing fancy, just enough to break me up sitting on a bucket. Right, okay? right. Now I get the collar going and I, and I observe how the crows react and I'll shoot some of them, you know, and if they, if they react pretty well, I'll stay and keep shooting. And uh, I've had some decent shoots like that with, uh, um, just a, just a little makeshift line, nothing fancy. It, most of it, you hear, uh, waterfowlers talk about this a lot is being on the X. Okay. Being on the spot. Right. That is the main thing. You got to be where the birds want to be. Exactly. 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 You know, the best layout in the world, um, um, you see it with water. I used to hunt waterfowl a lot. And, uh, you know, you might have out, you know, 50 to 75 or 100 decoys when I used to hunt uh, divers. I used to love hunting uh, uh, greater scop and canvas back and old squaw and all kinds of stuff. But, when you got a raft of birds where you might have <clears throat> four or 5,000 bluebills sitting in a raft, maybe a, a quarter of a mile from where you're set up, every duck in the country sure isn't going to come to your 50 or 100 decoys. They're going to that raft of birds like that. Right, so, right. you know, X marks the spot like that. Exactly. Exactly. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to, a to another question here. And it, this has to do with setup as well. How close do you put the Fox Pro unit from you when calling for crows? What's what's the ideal range? Would you say for for calling in crows and getting them in the you know where you can get them in the shotgun range? Where are you setting that Fox Pro unit at? Generally, um, I keep it uh, uh, about fifteen yards from uh, from my position. Okay, so fairly close, fairly close. Yeah, fairly close. You bet. Not only that, too, is. Um, uh, is because since the Fox pro callers are loud and you want a lot of volume is, uh, I angle the speakers where they're not drowning me out in the blind. Right. Like that right. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Guarantee it. Does, uh, does the wind is wind a factor on how crows approach the call? Is there, do you, would you uh, like set, uh, set your call up in a certain, you know, direction in accordance with the wind? Sure. Hey, now, which reminds me, uh, here's a good tip. Um, more times than most, um, it's always a good idea, you know, to have your speaker set in back of you with the de- with the decoys. So what happens is the crows have to fly over you before they get to the speakers themselves. Okay. 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 Yep. <clears throat> but here's what happens later in the season. I see this time and time and time and time again. And what the birds will do is when you have the speaker set in back of you, this is after they've been shot a lot, they come in, okay? And what they do is 
they'll swing wide and they always swing around the backside of the blind looking at the speakers like that. Mm -hmm. And you got to spin around like a top all the time. So what I do later in the season, when they start doing that, in order to fool them, I take the speakers and I, instead of setting the speakers, say 15 yards in back of the blind, I'll take the speakers and put them 25 or 30 yards out in front of the blind. Okay. Okay. So they're spooky. They're used to being shot up. And because of that characteristic, have them swinging wide when they're coming in and then they hook around the backside of the speakers like that, putting your speakers way out in front of you like that, then you got them right out in front of you. And it's like duck soup for crying out loud. So it's just a matter of, you know, figuring out certain things like that when things starts happening with experience, it's knowing what to do and when to do it. And that's basically it in a nutshell. Okay. I got you. I got you. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned decoys there. How important are decoys? Do you run decoys when, when crow calling and what type sure, of decoys absolutely. are there? Are they actually crows or, uh, yeah. What I do is, is, um, I've got some old, um, they're called a carry light crow decoy. And in my crow museum here in Kansas, I, uh, I still use some of the old carry lights. They're from the 1960s. It was from when uh, carry light went from paper mache crow decoys, like the old Victor crow decoys and uh, you know, a lot of the old paper mache decoys that they made years ago. <clears throat> when they went to plastic, they made a good, hard, durable decoy. And then um, what happened was... Um, um, Let's see, it was called a rock crow decoy. And then I think rock crow uh, sold the, um, uh, the rights to carry light. So carry light, made it, it's the exact same decoy, but they cheapened it up with, it with cheaper plastic and stuff. But the old rock crow decoys were good. Even the old carry light decoys were still good. Um, um, they're, uh, in my opinion, they're much more durable than your flambeau decoys now. But a guy has to do what he has to do. He has to get the decoys that he can lay his hands on, and that's right, it. But right. at any rate, that's what I use. And uh, uh, I put them on the ground and put them in the trees and all kinds of stuff like keep, that. Keep them and, fairly, uh, keeping them fairly close to you just like you do the call? Like the, yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Keep them close to me just like I do the call. What's a yep. what's an optimum number of decoys to have? How many decoys are you looking to put out on a spread? Generally, uh, I don't really use a whole lot. Um, many years ago, what I used to do is uh, here again. It's it's just what works for you. Um, I used to have the whole back end of the pickup truck filled up with bags of decoys, and All I'd right. be putting out bag after bag of you know nice ground set. Boy, it looked great, you know, and everything else. And it did work. But the more I did it, the more I realized you don't need all these decoys. That's now a, That's a more you take, more to pack, more to set up, more to t- that, more to break down. That's, that's exactly right. So now what I do is is uh, I carry 20 uh, decoys when they, that I use, and I can use up to 20 to put in the trees. Or uh, more times than most, I would say 90% of the time, um, I'll use anywhere from eight to 10 de- uh, decoys in the trees and that's it. Okay. And, um, what I do is instead of all those bags of decoys that I used to lug around years ago, um, it's just not necessary. So what I do is 
is um, as I start to shoot them, uh, the more dead ones that uh, they, they become, dead they on become the ground, decoys, don't they? <laughs> uh, yeah, I use them as decoys. Right. And uh, what what happens is people say to me, and I, I'll give you another example of this. A guy I hunted with for about five years before he passed away. He lived in Maryland. His name was Jerry Byroad. Him and I had some great shoots together. And Jerry said to me, uh, he said, well, how come you don't uh, grab the dead ones and put them in a lifelike position? Because that's what he did in Maryland. Uh-huh. And I said, it's unnecessary. And he says, well, and this guy had been hunting crows for years. He said, yeah, but he says, isn't that going to spook the crows when he says he sees them? They, some are dead on their back with their wings stretched out. Some are on their sides. And then I said, when they come in, they know damn well they're dead. I said, but they're curious. They got to see what's going on. And right. the more dead ones you got on the ground, the better. And uh, that has helped me. Uh, um, you know, it's just the more dead ones you have on the ground, the bigger the draw. Awesome. So, uh, uh, you know, that's the way I've hunted them for, for decades. And it has, it has worked uh, exceedingly well. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty good stuff. So you say you go out there with a dozen or less decoys, and then as you start shooting crows, each crow that hits the ground is just another decoy added to your spread. That's exactly right. Now, sometimes, stuff. you know, if you, if you have a cripple or something and he's starting to hop off, it would behoove you to try to um, go ahead and shoot him over again on the ground uh, so you don't have other birds decoying to him too far down Get away range from, from you. Your, I got you. Yes, sir. From your position. That makes sense. You want to dispatch him as soon as you can. And if you can't, um, hopefully he'll run off into the brush somewhere and uh and they won't notice them as much but that's another thing that i want to bring out too i was hunting with this guy he was from hernando mississippi he was a banker and uh, his name was uh bob i think was his last name uh can't remember what his last name is right now but at any rate real nice southern gentleman i met him in a goose pit in argentina and I told him, I said, you ever hunt any crows? And he says, no. Well, I gave him an invite. Two years later, he calls me. And he says to me, is your invitation still good? And I said, come on ahead. So here, he, his name was Bob Cook. That was his name. At any rate, so here comes Bob. He comes out here. So at that particular time, the crows in Kansas, it's already gone. This is by the 1990s now. We were hunting out of state. So we were down in Oklahoma hunting. And... Uh, <clears throat> we were uh, going to get set up in this place. And he says, well, he says, you talk about the dead crows on the grass. He says, the grass here is about two feet high or better. He says, they're not going to be able to see them. So I said to him, I said, you mean you're not going to be able right. to see them? Because they can see them up in the sky, can't they? <laughs> that's right. You're at the ground level, but from the air, trust me, they can see them. Right. So we got set up and I remember the first shoot that we had, uh, he didn't want to set up there. He says, I, he says, I don't know if we ought to set up there or not. And I said, well, why don't you just humor me? So we shot 460 crows in this one spot. And after that, he said to me, Bobby, <laughs> he says, I'll never question you again. They're like that. So um, there was another story with another Bob. This guy was from Maryland also, who I took out. And he was a dentist. And he was used to getting his own way all the time. So um, his name was what back was his last name? Oh, Bob Alban was his name. And he's a, he was a nice guy. Just that, you know, he, he'd get kind of pushy sometimes. So I, he I, says I know to the me, type. I know the type. Everybody's hunted with somebody like that. 
from once, yeah, you know, so once upon a time. We're out and I'm scouting this place out in the morning. And he's, I think we ought to set up here. And I said, I think we ought to set up about 400 yards west of here. He's, no, no, this is a spot. So I said, okay. <clears throat> so we set up there. We shot about 50 birds. And for the rest of the morning, all we did was see birds going through where I wanted to set up at. So then he turns to me at the end when he knows that he screwed up. He says to me, Bob, meaning me, he says, that's what you get for listening to a damn know-it-all. So <laughs> the, the two of us, we were in a pit in South Africa hunting Egyptian geese. And um, this girl, her name was Paula. She was the, uh, the wife of the white hunter. She's filming us shooting geese, okay? okay? So he says to me, he's talking to me like I've never done this before. And he says to me, now, Bob, he says, I'm going to count to three. And he says, then we're going to get up and shoot the geese. So I turn around and I wink at Paula just to get a rise out of him. And I said, well, Bob, and I said, why don't you just say take them and we'll take them? So because he's used to getting his own way all the time, he says, no, no, no. He says, I insist, Bob. He says, I'm going to count one, two, three, and then we'll take them. I said, well, that's <laughs> fine, Bob. I said, you go ahead and count one, two, three. I'm going to take them on one. Oh, did he get mad? <laughs> oh, boy. I'm sure he did. Well, did you take uh, them on? Did you take them on one once they come in? <laughs> well, no geese, no geese came at that particular time. Okay. okay? So he, <laughs> he, he got so, he got so aggravated that he got out of the blind. And he was kicking the mud clods and he went over into another blind that was about 175 yards away. And I turned around and I looked at Paula and she had her hand over the bridge of her nose because she was trying to maintain some sort of professionalism. <laughs> and you could see the tears coming out of the corners trying of both to hold her back eyes. Laughter. She was laughing so hard. <laughs> That's good stuff. Let's let's yeah. move let's move on here, Bob. Let's talk about sounds. Uh, what what type of sounds do you like running for for calling crows? What do you find that's most effective for you? That's um that's a good point. It depends on the type of hunting that you're going to be doing. Okay. Um, most guys that um you know that like to field hunt them. <coughs> They like to use calls that are non-aggressive, where the birds come in leisurely, okay? Okay. And um, uh, what I do is um, is I've got a recognition call that I use. Fox Pro sells it for me. And uh, you can use that particular call in conjunction with another type of call, too. Like, you can use a recognition call, and they come in leisurely, you know. If you want to mix things up a little bit, if you have two or three of them that are coming in after the first shot, you can use it, what, what I call a distress call. <clears throat> um, the, um, uh, I also have uh, what they call is a, uh, is a come here call. Um, now, if you're going to be, say, uh, uh, shooting birds where you want to have them more aggressive, where you have birds strung out and you're dealing with birds that are, uh, uh, headed back toward a nocturnal roost in the late afternoon. That's where a good distress call and fighting call uh, will serve you quite well. Um, and that basically, those are the only two calls that I like to use because it fires them up. Um, uh, like I say, a good distress call. I've got a real good fighting call that uh, Fox Pro uh, sells. And I've shot tens of thousands of crows over that one call alone, that fighting call. Anybody that has it, that uses it, you know, through one of their Fox Pro callers, 
they'll know exactly what I'm talking about because I'm telling you what they come on the double when they hear that. Right, right, and there, and we do have we have a rather large crow library. Uh, we actually have a, a Bob Aronson crow sound pack. Uh, so you guys, you know, if you're interested in this type of stuff, just go to gofoxpro.com and you can just go to the sound list and you'll, you'll see the sound packs. They're some really good sounds. And as, uh, you know, listening to Bob here, he's, he shot a few crows. So this stuff works. <laughs> there's a, there's a morning call that, um, that, uh, that works real well too, especially if you hear them doing it. Now, when I say a morning call, there's another call on the market that they call a morning call, but my morning call is spelled M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, okay? Uh -huh. yep. The old timers used to call it a sorrow call, sorrow. okay? Yeah. What they're doing is they're mourning the dead crows right. on the ground because right. of a crow's intelligence. Um, and the other call that's on the internet that's called a morning call, it's like morning call, like maybe the crows are coming in, who knows for what. But uh, I know that uh, But my particular morning call um, that's a good call to use, but here again, it's through experience knowing when to use it. The best time to use it is when you hear birds using a morning call <coughs> and then you chime in with them okay. and it okay. works real well. So here's another thing too, just, just briefly not to butt in, but with my fighting call years ago, I used to use it. And during the winter time, my lips would get so damn chapped from the moisture uh, with your uh, lips being on the mouthpiece of the crow call, that uh, when I got a hold of Fox Pro years ago, I had them implement that in my Fox Pro callers, and I used that. And that way, it saves my breath for one thing. Of course. Um, and it and my lips don't get near as chapped. So uh, that has been a big benefit using electronic uh, game callers as opposed to using a mouth call all the time. Right. Right. Well, how many different sounds will you play on a particular setup uh, when calling crows? And is there a particular sound that you always start out with? <laughs> well, with, uh, if, if it's, uh, say, for instance, if you're hunting in a, a field type setup or a con orchard uh, or you know, any type of field where uh, they're grow growing any type of particular row crop that that, that the crows want to you know, want to eat is um, basically uh, it's they're just the non-aggressive calls is uh, uh, basically uh, uh, your come here call is good uh, and the recognition call is good mm -hmm. and that's uh, and sometimes I will also use the distress call too. Here again, it also depends too on. <clears throat> how big an area you have now here, here's something, uh, what, uh, what, what a lot of guys don't realize is this. <clears throat> I hear a lot of guys say, well, in areas where we hunt, we don't have that many crows. So we don't turn the collar on full blast because we don't want all the crows to come at once. And then we're done <clears throat> logically, you know, that's sound advice, but what they also fail to realize is, is they can be in an area. And because they don't turn the crow collar on at full blast, they can be missing birds that might be a couple of hundred yards away because of the timber flying low that they have no clue or even in the area, for crying out loud. They could be right. trading back and forth, going to different areas like that, that they're missing out on. 
So it's a trade-off. I mean, you know, what they're saying is true about that, and I do agree with them. But in certain uh, – in, in, in other areas, once you get to learn an area and really how many birds you really do have to work with, um, uh, you have to uh, do what's best for you in any type of hunting situation like that. And I, uh, I'll give you a good example this one guy was down in Alabama hunting crows here. And uh, this guy was just using hand call. And, uh, you know, the best that he had ever done, we were in this one pecan orchard. And he says, you know, we don't have that many crows around here. And <clears throat> he says, uh, so, you know, I just use the hand calls. So I said, well, let's just give the hi-fi a whirl here. So we did. And uh, we shot 240-some crows that particular morning. And he was absolutely ecstatic about it. So, you know, we went on to another uh, uh, orchard, you know what I mean? And we're, we're using my Fox Pro callers. And I'll tell you what, uh, it wasn't soon after that before he had Fox Pro on the telephone ordering him a Fox <laughs> Pro caller. That's all. That's what we like to hear. So, so how loud are you actually running your Fox Pro unit? So you're running rather rather loud you talking about three-quarter volume to max volume or what are you talking about yeah well it it, if uh, if you have a a fairly uh, calm day where the winds are say five miles per hour or less then i don't play it very loud because they can hear it fine right so you're talking Um, about like 50 percent uh no I, i would say uh um uh, yeah, 50, 50% or less. Yeah, okay. Fi- okay. So 50% or less volume. If you've got a good, nice, calm, if the winds are yeah. light, if the winds yep. are light. Um, now if it's a breezy day, then I use more volume. And, uh, uh, what a lot of people think too, is they think that if, uh, if the volume is too loud, you know, it's gonna, uh, it's gonna scare them the closer that they get. Well, it's been my experience that uh, the sound, you know, especially volume-wise, really doesn't affect them. Okay. Um, a, a lot of people get stuff stuck on their head where they start analyzing, thinking that uh, that wildlife analyzes things like a human being does. Okay, um, I'll give you a good example of that. Earlier, when I was talking about birds picking out a blind where it looks like a box out in the middle of a field somewhere. I was with my uh, hunting partner uh, uh, that I've been hunting with now for the last 20 years. And uh, the only place we could get was right out in the middle of this uh, field, wide open, not a tree around. So um, at any rate, um, he says, man, they're never going to buy this, Bob. So I said, why don't you humor me, Dick? So we get the blind out, and I use evergreen boughs, okay, for concealment. And the way I have them is, is um, I bow them almost at a 45-degree angle inward towards the blind, where it's just like a teepee with a hole in the top, okay? And that way the birds can't look in and see it from above. So what I did was I had like 20 of my crow decoys that I hang in the trees, all I did with them was I shook them out of the bags and I took the tail end of the decoys and I stuck them in the sandy soil, you know, where they were pretty good, you know? And, um, and because I don't have any stakes on them. Uh, so, uh, uh, that sufficed. And, uh, we had a heck of a good, I have pictures of that particular shoot. We had crows laying dead all over the bloody place. 
And um, he said to me, he says, I just don't understand how they can buy it. And I said to him, it's because birds don't analyze. To them, all we looked like was just a little evergreen tree growing up out here in the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere. Okay. And okay. I've done the same thing with guys years ago using my same crow blind. We were hunting along this creek. I'm driving my pickup truck. And um, he said, well, we can whistle up a tumbleweed blind here to shoot these mallards. Uh, this is a good place that I used to hunt the ducks at. And I said, there's no need to do that. I said, I got a nice canvas tarp on the back. We can be out of the wind. And he says, they're never going to buy this. You got this evergreen blind sitting right in the middle of this creek and everything else is brown. They're going to pick it out. And I told him, I said, birds don't analyze. To them, it's just another bush or another tree because it looks natural. So we throw out about 18 decoys, and suffice to say, we shot more than our limit on that creek that particular day. And uh, at any rate, he was just amazed. But here again, it's just what you're exposed to, you know, uh, um, who, you know, uh, what you're willing to try out. Uh, Even as a matter of fact, my old crow hunting mentor, the first time I tried that with him years ago, Since he was a gunsmith, this is when the crows were still here in Kansas, I hunted alone a lot when I wasn't hunting with him. So I did things by myself, by trial trial and error, and if it it messed up, there was nothing lost. You know what I mean? I learned a good lesson that this doesn't work, and hey, this does work. So the first time I did that with him, he was absolutely adamant, saying this will never work. They're going to pick the blind out, but... He said to me, he says, you know what? He says, uh, he said, I taught you everything, you know, he says, now you're starting to teach me. There you a few go. Things. There you go. That's good stuff. Well, I, yeah. got, I got a couple more questions just about the volume stuff, just, uh, for clarity for myself. Cause you know, I'm going to, you know, we have a crow season here in Kentucky. So as soon as it comes back in, you know, I'm going to try, <laughs> I'm going to take this knowledge I'm hearing from you. And I'm going to put it, put it to the test, but say you have crows coming in, you know, you started calling and crows are coming approaching and you were talking about call volume so say you do have your call running pretty loud uh if crows are advancing to the call approaching you what you're saying is there's no there's no sense in either ramping the volume up or ramping it down just keep it where it is because they're already coming is that correct that's it that that's exactly right another thing I've, I've, i've discovered too is that sometimes there's certain volume levels that they uh respond to better than others i've okay. noticed too yep. yep yep um you know whether it might be a full blast it might be backed off just a little bit from you know being full blast and <clears throat> when you when you hit a particular level of that that you know that they like leave it there yeah i got you i got you and what about uh say you've been calling for several minutes you don't see a crow you don't hear a crow there's nothing coming in well, you just later, turn, just turn it off. Turn it off. Well, I was going to ask you do you do you take the chance of running your call louder to see if you can reach crows that are further away, so to speak, or 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 just well, get up if, and move if somewhere else? Go, if if nothing's going on, what I do is I just hit the mute button okay. and um, I'll just let it set for you know a couple of minutes and just listen, see if I hear anything. And I'm especially watching, too, to see if I see any activity downwind of me. Okay. And here's another good example. Um, this place that I used to hunt out of state, I was with my old partner, Jim Lundquist. And uh, 
this particular spot was uh, five miles um, from the crow roost. And they had a big feed yard where they used to feed uh, a lot of livestock. They, uh, you know, uh, you know, they uh, have livestock come in at a certain weight, feed them a bunch of corn, get them up to a certain weight, and then they send them off to the slaughterhouse. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> the crow's habits in the afternoon, they would come into this feed yard from the west southwest, and where the uh, 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 roost was was about north northeast of my position so i'd have the collar off and i'd see a bunch of you know 20 25 birds heading toward this feed yard and i'd see them hovering over it boy i'd flip the collar on i was maybe 175 yards from the feed yard here they'd come bing bang bing bang bing you shoot a few of them get a few of them dead on the ground <clears throat> some of them would retreat and go back to the feed yard some of them would continue on in the direction of the roost few minutes later, here come another bunch, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 birds. I'd flip the collar on. Here they'd come. Bing, bang, bing, bang, boom. You got a few more dead on the right, ground. Right. <clears throat> this would continue like this for about two and a half to three hours. And the last hour, that's when that's when you get the most shooting because that's when the move is really on because right. there's not a lot of light left and those birds are moving toward they, the roof. They've got to get home. And by that time... You know, you've already got, you know, a couple of hundred birds or more dead on the ground. So like when it. you're tur turning that collar on, any of them that are going toward the roost, they got to kind of go through you to get back toward the roost. Anyway, they're going to come over you to see what all the commotion's about. And in situations like that, that's where Lundquist and I, we used to shoot uh, basically in volleys. Um, one guy would shoot until his gun was empty and he'd just yell out. He'd get down. I'd get up. I'd shoot till my gun was empty. I'd go out and then he'd get back up again and he'd start be, shooting. He'd be, he'd be reloaded with a few rounds. That's right. That's exactly. And, you know, if you got two guys who can shoot well um, uh, and everybody shoots better, I don't care who you are. You shoot better when you got all the birds to yourself where you can take when you're talking about multiple kills where where, you know, you can shoot anywhere from two to four or sometimes even uh, uh, five. Um, uh, but generally, if the birds get set up right, if you can shoot it, a good shooter can usually knock off three or four of them like that. And you start doing that every time you come up. I'm telling you what, you could pile up a bunch of crows in, in one hour's time. Man, it sounds like, my, sounds like my type of hunting. Plenty of shot yeah. opportunities. I like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, is there yeah. ever is there ever a time, and I'm sure it's probably going to have to do with with windy days, but is there ever a time that you do run your call, uh, the Fox Pro, close to full volume? Oh, absolutely. On um, on breezy days, when you're talking, uh, um, you know, uh, when I say breezy, my breezy might not be your breezy, but my breezy is ten to twenty miles an hour. Um, I had a day uh, last year where uh, man the wind was it was blowing steady 20 miles an hour and with gusts up to 30 and you got to have you have got to have the right type of spot in order to do any good in a situation like that i mean really out of the wind not only that but the crows got to be really out of the wind when they come in otherwise with a wind that strong you get one good shot and then one flip and they are gone, brother. You know what I mean? I After you. the first yep. shot. Yep. <clears throat> so if, if, here again, it depends on how well a guy knows the country. 
and knowing where he can get in certain hunting situations. And then, of course, you have to have the birds going through that particular area in order to get a shot at them in the first place. So, you know, there are so many variables, but when you have things really line up for you, when, uh, you know, when, when you really have them at your advantage, that's where I just keep shooting them. And I, I'll tell you a, a, a good illustration of that. And the reason why I do it, why any crow hunter does it is because of all the beatings you take during the season um, where, you know, conditions just aren't right. You can't fight the weather. Um, back in 2010, I had the largest crow hunt I ever had in my life. A solo crow hunt, that is. And from about 7.45 in the morning until about 3.30 that afternoon, I fired 1,150 trap loads from one location. Never moved a step. All day long, I was in that same <laughs> is that, damn is spot. That, is that all out of the same shotgun? You had that thing melted down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's and, good uh, stuff. Awesome. I, had a, I had a pair of guns but that, that I was using, but a pair of uh, gas-operated Berettas. Yep. And, uh, but I shot 834 crows in one spot. And I had to go back to the pickup truck twice to get more ammo. So what I did was <laughs> I'd go back to what I do is I start out with, I got a blind bag that holds uh, about 350 rounds of ammunition. And then I keep another uh, bag outside the blind with a couple of hundred rounds in it where I can make a short run, grab it, bring it, bring it back on the blind. Well, I went through a lot of ammo <clears throat> had to go back to the truck got more ammo, drove the truck back to the blind, took two flats, dumped it on the top of a seven gallon bucket inside the blind, had to drive the truck back again, run back to the blind. So you're losing time like right, all the right, time. You right. got birds moving, you know? Yep. At any rate, <coughs> had to go back again and get more ammo after that. So at the end of the day with the 1150 trap loads that I shot, and that's also including, you know, having to shoot cripples over on the ground and all that kind of stuff. Um, that was one heck of a day. But I just kept on shooting until either the crows were going to quit or I couldn't shoot anymore. Well, when all the, the when the, when the smoke when the smoke cleared, how many crows was laying dead on the ground? There was yeah, there was eight hundred and thirty-four. Man, that's crazy. So you shot eleven hundred fifty shots and yeah. had over eight hundred crows laying dead on the ground. Yeah, that's and then uh, that's pretty good. Then uh, there was another shoot that I had where um, uh, I went out in the morning and uh, I shot 568 up until about 1:30 in the afternoon, and uh, then I went out uh, later that afternoon and set up again on a different bunch of birds. Shot another 143, and I wound up with 711 with 895 rounds of ammunition shooting that day. Those are my two best days that I've had. But I've had other days, um, you know, solo hunts by myself where I've shot over 500. And uh, some in the partnership of other people, uh, like that guy Jim Lundquist and I. Jim Lundquist and I had five or six shoots over the years, over 600 together. But I had... One with Boyd Robeson, my crow hunting mentor. This is back in the early 1980s. The two of us, um, we shot 859 crows in one spot all day long. Never moved a step. Man, your shoulder shoulder must be made out of steel. Calloused over. It, if you're using light loads, it's, it's not really that big not a deal. Bad. Right, right, right. Well, I got a, um, I got a question for you about about calling again, and I think I know 
pretty much the one of the answers, but it's it's how long do you call a certain area, say a certain setup before you change locations. Now I'm sure if the birds, if you've got crows flying in, you're going to keep calling till you're either out of ammo or the birds quit flying. Right. But what about, what about these times? Like you've been, you've been calling and no crows are coming. What's, what's the cutoff point? Say, Hey, this spot ain't working. I need to move on somewhere else. What I usually do, I usually give it, uh, generally uh, about two hours most guys will give it an hour and quit but sometimes you can quit too early you know sometimes you can just have a lull in there okay Mm -hmm. and you learn from experience here again here's another example me and my crow hunting mentor were out hunting this is back in the 70s when they had the crows here uh locally before i had to go out of state all the time it was around six o'clock and Boyd was saying, man, he says, uh, we're just in the wrong spot. There's nothing moving. The birds ought to be pouring through here by now, because at that time of year, by uh, seven o'clock, seven fifteen, it was already getting real dusky. So he just knew, man, we're in the wrong spot. We're getting all the blind packed up, get all the decoys back in the darn truck and yeah, yeah, yeah. 6.30, we're just about ready to leave. Here come the damn crows, for crying out loud. We quit too soon. Right. And what happened was, what we failed to realize was, was that it was such a nice day that the crows just stayed out much later than they normally do. And we thought we were in the wrong spot and we were in the right spot. And all we did was just watch hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them flying right over where our blind was. Right. So right. You, you learn from experience. That's why I say I usually give it a couple of hours because okay. sometimes you don't want to quit too soon. Yeah. But you also learn too from hunting an area what to do and what not to do. And that's a good example right there. Like if you really know the area well, nothing's going on after about an hour, then you can with confidence say, we're just spinning our wheels here. It's time to fold up the tent and move. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's great. Not cause you know, me in the coyote world and you know, we're usually calling mostly coyotes, you know, every once in a while you get on Bobcat sands and stuff like that, you know, for coyote calling, we're calling anywhere from 15, sometimes just 10 minutes up to 30 minutes. And then we're, we're packing up and leaving. So that's really good stuff. I'm glad you, you mentioned how long you're actually staying on stand. Cause I never would have thought two hours, but it totally makes sense. So thank you. Thank you for that. Bob. It's pretty good stuff. I got another question about setup. Um, you know, it's about stand selection, how you, how you, what, what do you actually look for? And, and tell us about like morning versus evening. Do you like mornings, hunting the mornings better, midday, uh, late in the day in the evenings? I know it all can be good, but what's your preference? If the birds are flying, I guess you're just going to stay after them. But what have you found to be your favorite times to be hunting during the day? The favorite times is when the birds are moving. Right. That's right. more, that's mornings and that's late afternoons. Okay. And uh, those are the principal times when the birds are moving. For instance, uh, I'll give you a good example of that. You can get into a crow-rich area. I'm talking where you've got, you know, thousands upon thousands of birds to work with. You can go out there, say, around noontime. You can be driving around the countryside, and you're going, well, 
son of a gun, there's not a damn whole crow in this whole area. That's because you're in an area where they're not feeding. They might be feeding 20 miles from where you're at. Right. They might be they might be feeding five miles from where you're at. You're not going to know it unless you start circling around and finding to see, you know, see if you got any birds in the area. But <clears throat> you get out there in the morning. Yeah, here's here's one tactic that I use. I was driving down this blacktop highway one day. I was on my way to a hunting ground of mine. And I was probably uh, 100 miles from my destination. I hadn't gotten to the area yet. And, uh, you know, I hadn't got my uh, equipment in the motel room yet. I was just, you know, leisurely driving down the road. I see all these crows coming from the south crossing this blacktop. So I say to myself, holy smokes. So what I did was I started backtracking just to, I put the pedal to the metal to find out where these birds were coming from, brother. Okay. So I found out where they were roosting at, where the roost was itself. Right. <clears throat> Once I established that, then what I did was I started getting permission on different types of property just south of that blacktop, which was probably, in my estimation, probably, uh, I'm guessing probably half to three quarters of a mile from that roost. And then in the afternoon, when they came back, <coughs> I just went ahead and knocked the dickens out of them. But, uh, you know, sometimes guys run across stuff like that, and it was just a fluke. I happened to be going through the, the, this area at, at the right, right time, time of yep. day. But, uh, uh, I had enough experience to know, hey, if you see this amount of birds, you know they're coming from somewhere. Once you establish where the roost is at, you know where they're going back to. Then it's a matter of positioning yourself to shoot the birds that they got to go through you first going back to the roost. But you leave the roost alone because that's your drawing card. I like got that. you. Well, that's, that's good stuff, stuff, Bob. I appreciate that. It's, it's excellent info because I've actually, you know, as you're talking about this, I know spots where I see crows come off a roost in the mornings and you know i've never really thought about it being a roost site that they would come you know go there in the evenings and you know i didn't put two and two together so i've already started thinking about a few things where i'd start doing some crow calling so it's good stuff um bob i got two more questions for you before we wrap it up starting to run out of time here and and um this is going to be about equipment first off is i want to know what your favorite fox pro unit is what what unit do you like taking out there in the field and using for crow calling I have the uh, the uh, the Fox Pro Snow Crow Crow, at, and it's the one with the uh, with the two batteries. I had the one originally years and years ago with one uh, that held one uh, twelve volt dry cell battery. And what I used to do is <coughs> with that unit, I used to always have to carry an extra battery with me because it wouldn't last the whole day when you'd be running that at high volume. So now, right. once Fox Pro came out. With the second Snow Crow Pro with the two batteries in it, that's all it took. Those things, you could run them all bloody day long. You got no problem. Awesome, awesome. So that's a perfect unit for you. Um, Another thing, too, is if you're going to be using that collar a lot, what I would recommend is is um, every two years um, – go ahead and change those batteries out. I don't care how good they run or not. Right. Sooner or later, oh, they're yeah, going to let you down. Yep. you know, right when you need it. So right. <clears throat> what I do is every two years I get, get you a fresh uh, brand bat, new batteries, fresh set of batteries. That's good stuff. Yeah, for sure. Now tell us about, uh, 
What about your preference for shotgun gauge, shot size, and choke tube selection? What are you running on these crow hunts? Well, uh, here again, most of the time, um, uh, I like the tighter choke, um, but you, you also have to be uh, a more proficient shotgunner in order to use the tighter chokes in close because you're handicapping right. yourself. Of course, of course. So you're talking but about you like to have chokes, like a full like a full choke is what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. But the tighter chokes uh, are an advantage to an accomplished shotgunner because he has the right gun on the hand, no matter what the yardage on the shot. Right. You know, within reason, I'm talking right. about. You know, right. of course. Um, but uh, even me myself, what I will do is, uh, uh, especially when I'm hunting alone, is uh, uh, early in the season. Uh, a lot of times I'll put an improved cylinder in, in the darn shotgun you and where, where you, uh, you have much more, uh, 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 leeway, you know, for yeah. slop, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Oh yeah. I got plenty of slop. I mean, so that's probably what I had to start out with. <laughs> you know, you got to bear down a lot more with the tighter chokes when they get yeah. in, choke, in yep. close. And you're talking about multiple kills where with a more open choke, I mean, you can just annihilate them, but by and large, uh, uh, when you're talking about shot size, what has worked for me for decades is seven and a halfs and number eights and even number nines. Um, as a matter of fact, in uh, I've got it on YouTube uh, where it says Bob Aronson shoots his hundred thousandth crow. <clears throat> we shot that film footage in uh, 2001. And in that, I'm shooting a 20 gauge a lot out of that blind. And some of those crows that I was shooting were shot with number nines. I even made a comment on one shot. It even surprised me how far the nines had kill them. Yep. So, but, uh, uh, for the greater most part, seven and a half and eight. And once I started traveling, I started going to mainly 12 gauge. And the okay. reason why that is, is, is because every time when I hunt out of state, you've got to have at least a backup gun in case you have gun trouble. So if I was shooting two different gauges, it meant I had to take four shotguns instead of two. So it was just, it was more chaotic. It's, it's a lot simpler for me now, just shooting a straight 12 gauge and I carry nothing but 12 gauge ammunition with me in the vehicle. And it's all in seven and a half, so number eights. And it's just a track load, either a one and one eighth ounce load, or a one ounce load, either one. The one ounce loads work great on the crows too, out of a 12 gauge. Awesome. Right? <laughs> and there's no sense of shooting anything like a super heavy Magnum type load and stuff like that. Just no, like you're talking about, you, you get no, those times you're shooting over a thousand no, rounds. You, you can, you know, you can, hell, if you want to go ahead and shoot buckshot at them if you want to, if that floats your boat. But right, I'm telling right. you, a, it don't, a good it's not needed. load will serve you, will serve you very, very well. So you're shooting a, you're shooting a, a 12 gauge is, is right up your alley with, yes, with 12 a seven gauge, and a half. Yeah. Yep. And you either you modified, improved, modified, full choke. Those are all good chokes that are served you well. Improved cylinder will serve you well too, you know, but you gotta uh, be calling them crows in close. You know, right? guys say, well, you know, if I shoot improved cylinder, I'm going to be losing out <coughs> on longer shots. Right. I said, so take two guns and put them in the blind. I said, right. when you got birds working in close, grab the one with the improved yeah, cylinder. Yeah. If you got a further shot, grab the other shotgun. And I did that too for years and years and years. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Bob, we appreciate you coming on. This is tons of information. Just like I said, definitely the authority on crow calling and, 
you know, I've tried to ask different people that I know have done it a little bit for crow calling, trying to get some pointers and stuff. And man, I've, I've learned, I've learned a ton from this podcast right here. I'm sure glad you came on Bob and we really appreciate you. You got anything you'd like to, to leave us with before we sign off? <clears throat> well, John, all I can say is, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you and um, the Fox Pro Game Call Company, uh, their customer service, uh, there's nobody who can touch Fox Pro as far as their customer service goes. Uh, very, very, very good family to do business with. They've always done well, uh, done well by me. Awesome. It's, we appreciate you, Bob. And if anybody's interested in, in crow calling and you think you need some more sounds on your Fox Pro, head over to the website, gofoxpro.com. Tons and tons of sounds on there. Actually got Bob Aronson sound pack. Go check it out. We hope everyone enjoyed this episode. We hope you join us again right here on the Fox Pro Podcast.